I'm always pumped about um, some of the things we do with, or the big events. So who went to the extravaganza? Did you guys go to the extravaganza two Saturdays ago? Uh, a great time out there. Just a fantastic crowd, a couple thousand folks and 500 kids. It was, it was just a great time out there. And one of the reasons why we love to do that is because we want to we connect with our community as best we can to kind of put our best face forward and, uh, and, and really tell our community that we love them, want to serve them, and, and desire for them to come and join us. And uh, so I had a great conversation with a man there, um, and he came up to me, and he kind of warmed my heart because he was like, this is just an incredible thing that you guys are doing. I just love what you're doing in the community. And uh, he wanted to know more about our church, and I was really excited uh, for this guy. And he told me that he had yet to, he had moved to this area, but he had yet to find a church that, was, that would connect with him. And, um, and, and, and so I asked him, I was like, so what exactly are you looking for? Uh, and he said, <clears throat> he said, I'm looking for a church that loves everyone. And I said, check, good news. And he said, he said I want a church that accepts people uh, where they are. And I said, check, awesome, that's us. Uh, I, want, I want a church that serves people like Jesus served people. And I said, check. I mean, we are doing well on this test so far. Like, this is going really well. And then, he, and then he said this, but I think that the Bible is completely made up and the miracle stuff didn't really happen, and I really just can't believe all that. Not check. Um, it, like it, was, it was just a moment where I was like, okay. I want to stay in this conversation, but I can't agree with you on that point because we believe at the Church of King Bay that the Bible is completely true and is our standard for truth for all of what we believe. Uh, and so I, I told him that, and uh, we talked for just a few minutes more, but he was kind of ready to move on past the conversation. I really genuinely hope that he uh, shows up to church one day and we can start a relationship. But um, I thought that it was just such an interesting conversation. He was so enthralled with what was happening in the community. He wanted to be a part of a church that loved people and, uh, and served people, but he wanted to divorce that from the idea that Jesus rose from the dead. He wanted to take that out, all the miracles of Jesus. He didn't want, he wanted to do away with that. He wanted to take away the Bible and just take away all of those standards of truth of what actually did happen uh, 2,000 years ago and, and move it away from this whole idea that God does indeed love people. And I don't think that he's alone in that. I think that there are a ton of people, including people in this room, that struggle. Yes, they like the morals and the teachings of Jesus, but the entire idea of him rising from the dead, eh, I'm just not sure. I'm not sure I believe that. Some of the miracles, I'm not sure I believe that. All this stuff in the Bible that was miraculous, I'm not sure I believe that. I'm not really even sure I believe that the Bible is completely true. And I get it. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, and so there might be, you might have been brought here some way. Somebody might have given you some peeps this week and said, hey, I love you. Uh, and, and, and want you to come to church. And so you kind of felt like I've gotten some marshmallows, so I better go to church. Um, uh, so, I mean, it, it, it might be that. Um, but I'm, I'm just glad that you're here to kind of search this out. And it might be that you... You don't have any interest in believing any of this stuff, but I'm glad that you're here so that you can hear this out. It might be that you do come to church on a regular basis and that you're involved maybe, uh, but in the back and recesses in your mind, you might even be able, not be able to articulate it, but you struggle believing some of the things that the Bible has to say about the resurrection, about Jesus rising from the dead, about all the other miracles in the Bible, and you struggle through it. And still, you might be in this room, you're like, I believe all of it. I've believed it for a long time, maybe all of my life, or maybe just recently. And I'm here because I'm celebrating Easter. Glad that you're here as well. But there's a lot of people in this room that are walking through 
their picture of what happens in the resurrection. Okay, so here's where it comes down to and where the, what the Bible talks about as to where people struggle with this dilemma of what do I deal with the miracle of the resurrection? And so the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote like most of the New Testament, he says this in 1 Corinthians. You don't have to turn there. It'll be up on the screen. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, meaning they've died, in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, this is it. This is all we got to work about or worry about. We are of all people most to be pitied. Now here's a translation. The translation is, he basically says, if you believe this stuff about Jesus and it actually never happened, then you are an idiot. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's worthless. It's meaningless. You can't divorce the idea of God's love and and, and caring and kindness and compassion for people. And you can't divorce it from the resurrection and the miraculous of what happens in the Bible. He says, you can't do that. Those two things go together. And that if, we, if it's just about this life, if this life is the only thing that exists, then we as Christians who believe all this stuff about what's going to happen after this life, then we are most to be pitied because we are indeed pitiful. What a waste of time. What a poor hobby. But what if the resurrection is true? If the resurrection is true, doesn't it stand to reason that all these things about God's love are also true? That if you put the resurrection and say, yes, absolutely, I believe that this happened, that it is a historical fact, then yes, it's true. Because we can come to the Bible and say, yes, okay, so Paul's saying that, you know, the, the love of God is dependent upon the resurrection. Well, I just love the love of God. Doesn't, you know, what love is patient, love is kind. Well, Paul also said that. Well, I've heard that God is love. Well, John is the one who said that, the Apostle John, in his, in his book, the first letter of John, uh, chapter 4, verses 18, and he said that God is love. Now, two, two chapters just before that, he says that if, if someone denies the resurrection, then they are a liar and a false prophet. So again, you have the same guy writing this in the same letter saying that God is love. All the things that we love about God are true, But if you deny the resurrection, you are a liar and you are a false prophet. Now that's interesting. So in light of that, I want to talk about God's love for us. And I want to use Jesus' words to do so. Now if we believe in the resurrection, and maybe you don't even believe it today, but let's just say hypothetically you do, then let's just pretend for a second that everything that God says about love and his compassion for people is also true. So I want to walk through one of Jesus' most famous stories. And I'm a big fan of stories. Jesus told a lot of them. They were called parables in the Bible. And uh, he would tell them with a point in mind. He wanted to make a point. And usually those points had to do with his life. So he was drawing, he was drawing stories together. And he was drawing those points and connecting them to his life, his death, his resurrection, and making all of it make sense. Now, this particular story, Charles Dickens, the famous author, said this about this particular story. He said, it is the finest short story ever written. Now, I'm drawn into stories. I love them. 
I love movies, I like going to the movies. Uh, and so my wife and I, we actually went to the movies recently, and this barely ever happens, right? Hashtag four kids, okay? So, and never, like, we don't, we don't really ever go to movies. But I went and saw the movie La La Land. I'm not sure if you ever saw it, but I, like, it was, it's a story about, like, an aspiring um, actress and a jazz pianist and their romantic affection for one another. It was a very interesting tale, but I've, like, gotten wrapped up in it. I listen to the soundtrack almost every day, and I think I want to become a jazz pianist. Uh, and so, like, I might have looked up lessons. Okay, so, but, uh, it's, it, but I get wrapped up into great stories, and I think that I want us to get wrapped up into this story today. It's the story of the prodigal son. You might have heard of it, um, and it's one of Jesus's most famous parables. And I think that if we get wrapped up in it, we can figure out, okay, we can see ourselves in the story and see how Jesus's love certainly connects with us But then at the very end, we're also going to talk about your response. So spoiler alert, at the end, I'm going to ask you to respond. And so I I want you to think through, if you've come into this room, I don't believe any of these things, but I believe that you've been drawn here for a purpose. And it is to respond to this message. And you can respond yes or no, but I want to give you a chance to respond. And so just, I'm just going to let you know that that's going to happen. And we're going to kind of walk through this story, get wrapped up in it, see ourselves in it, and wonder what God is going to do through his love, which connects with his resurrection. Everything works together. It's a fantastic story. So Luke chapter 15. So if you've got a Bible, uh, Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, I want to give you one. We have copies of the Word of God at our connection table. You can pick one up with your first-time guest gift or whatever. You just pick one up. We want to give you one for free. If you've got a phone, uh, you, can pick, you can download the uh, Version app or the Holy Bible app. We'd love for you to do that. My notes are in the live event section if you want to check those out as well. I just want you to follow along reading uh, reading for yourself God's word. If all else fails, of course, it'll be up on the screen behind me. So I want you guys to follow along uh, and make sure that I'm telling the truth about what Jesus says. So uh, Luke chapter 15 uh, and the story of the prodigal son. Now there's three main characters in this story. First, you have the son, which is the prodigal. Uh, and I'll explain that in just a second. Uh, then you have a brother, uh, a brother to the one. So there's two sons, one's a brother. And we're not going to get into the brother today, but you can read it on, on your own. Very important piece of the story, but we're just not going to have time for him today. Read it at home. It'd be fantastic. And then of course, the father. Uh, now I think that there's two kind of main mistakes that we make when we're looking at this story. The first is this, is that we think that the main character in the story is the son. After all, it's called the story of the prodigal son. So we think the main character is the son. But in fact, the main character in the story is the father. The father is mentioned 12 times in 20 verses. He's a big part of this story, and I think he's the main character. Second, we misunderstand what the word prodigal means because we don't usually use that language. It comes out of the King James Version, uh, and it's used to describe the, the son's actions. And uh, in prodigal, we usually think that it means like he's a runaway. He does run away, but that prodigal actually means reckless. It means wasteful. It means spending until you have nothing left. Uh, so, so these two distinctions that, that actually it's the father who's the main character, and also it actually is the love of a father that is incredibly reckless, that he spends until he has nothing left, okay? So verse 11 is where we're going to start. Luke 15, verse 11 says this. <clears throat> and he said, meaning Jesus, he's telling a story, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Okay, stop right there for just a second. Basically what he's saying, without saying it, he says, I want your money. Everything that's coming to me is my inheritance. I want it right now. I wish that you were dead. As if you were dead. I want it right now, my inheritance. Give it to me right now. 
I don't want to have a relationship with you. I don't want to see you again. I'm going to take everything that's mine and I'm going to leave because I hate you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. My children in the future, I don't want to have anything. I don't want you to have anything to do with them. I'm done with you. All I want is my inheritance. Let me go. And Jesus is connecting us into this story because that's exactly what we have done with God in our own life. Is that we have rejected God. And, with, and we've said, I want everything that God's got coming to me. I want the stuff. I want the provisions. I want good life. I want good health. But I don't want God himself. I don't want the Father. I have no interest in the Father. And the Father is, in fact, dead to me. And I don't want him in my life. I don't want his authority. I don't want his law. I don't want his control. I want to be in control of my own life. He is, in fact, dead to me. And that's what the Son says to the Father. Now, it's amazing how the Father responds in verse 12. He, re- he asks for it from the father and the father just says, he divided his property between them and gave it to him. Now he didn't have to do that. In fact, the role of the father normally in community is to cut him off, ceremoniously cut him off or even kill him if he does this. The community could come along and stone him, whip him and then cast him out. That's what should have happened. But the father, in fact, divides the inheritance and gives it to the son. See, what we learn from this, first point, if you're taking notes, God loves you even when you've rejected him. God loves us even when we've rejected him. And the Bible is quite clear. We have all rejected him. There's not one of us that hasn't rejected him. So we've all been in this place where we've all said, I want all the health, I want all the wealth, I want all the provision, I want everything that you can provide for me, but I don't want you, God. Haven't we, always, haven't we all been there at some point? Like, I want everything in my life. I want this great abundance that only he could provide, but I don't want him. And so, but the deal is, is that God still provides. He keeps you alive. He gives you breath. He makes your heart beat. He provides everything you need. He still loves you even when you've rejected him. So let's look at verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country And there he squandered his property in reckless living. That's where we get prodigal from. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Now, I'm a huge Tolkien fan, okay? Uh, Lord of the Rings fan. Anybody a Lord of the Rings fan in here? You like Lord of the Rings? Okay. So second, uh, second uh, part of that whole series is, uh, is the two towers. Now, if you read that book, it basically goes chapter to chapter to chapter, switching back and forth between two, two or three different stories. And so what I want us to see here in this point is that there, like, have two screens in your mind. Have the screen of what's happening with the father and have a screen of what's happening with the son. They're both happening simultaneously in the story. First, let's, let's take the son for a second. So he goes off into this far off country and squanders it on all sorts of reckless living, spending everywhere. He's got friends, he's got people, he's partying all day long and he's just recklessly living, spending everything he's got, all of his property. And then the winds change And famine comes and he loses everything. And in the Jewish culture, to be anywhere around pigs would have been 
absolutely awful and shameful, and that's the only job that he can do and find where he's feeding the pigs, and then he is so hungry that he finds himself in a place where he wants to eat what the pigs are eating. This is the last place that anybody would want to be is in the pig filth, but that's where we find him. This is the trajectory of our lives. If we get into this idea of reckless living, we will finally find ourselves in great darkness. Now, here's the deal, though, is we often don't even see it coming. There's an old saying that says that it says, says there's no pleasure in sin, meaning there's no fun in sin. I would submit, um, then you're not doing it right, right? Uh, I mean, sin is fun. Like, it's fun. Like, I genuinely like sinning, don't you, Right? Here's the deal. Here's what the Bible actually says. That old saying, is com- it, ca- it comes from the Bible. Here's the actual line. There is pleasure in sin for a season. You see, all sin ends in darkness. You see that sexual relationship that you have that was outside of God's bounds for marriage? It, was, it ended in darkness, didn't it? When things went wrong with a partner, it ended badly. When we get ourselves into addictions that might have started very innocently, now it's got a hold of our life and now we're a slave to some kind of substance or some other relationship or something. And it's just getting darker and darker. Maybe you walked into this, relationship or walked into this room with a broken relationship. Maybe you've walked into this room with a family problem where things and relationships are strained. Maybe you walked into this room and you've got some terrible financial debt and, you don't even, and you're sinking with the overwhelming feeling that you really don't know what's going to happen with your financial future. Or you've walked in this room with some kind of very dark secret sin that is overwhelming your life that nobody else knows about except for you and except for God and the weight of it is crushing you. You see, there's darkness on the other end of our sin. Now, what's happening simultaneously, I told you that there's two screens. There's what's happening with the Son, and there's what's happening on the other side with the Father. You see, point number two, God loves us in our darkness. God loves you in your darkness. You see, what's happening on the other side of that screen, simultaneously, that Father is waiting and longing and wanting that Son to come home. He's still loving Him. He's still loving you. So even in your darkness, even in the darkest places of your life, God still loves you. You might think that God has abandoned you. That's so not true. God is waiting for you and longing for you to come to him. He's desiring for you to come to him. And God loves you in that darkness. And he is watching on the horizon, waiting for you to come with a never stopping, never giving up love that the Father has for you. So here's the turning point, verse 17. It says this. But when he came to himself, meaning the prodigal son, when he came to himself, he wakes up. He's in the pig pen and he wakes up. He says this, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Some of you have wandered in here today. And really, church is not your thing. (laughs) You're here for Easter because it's a holiday, and I get that. And you're supposed to go to church on Easter. That's normal. Um, But let me suggest to you that it is absolutely no coincidence that you're here. I don't know how you got here 
or why someone might have prompted you to be here today. But let me tell you that that is God's love for you trying to wake you up. Trying to wake you up. And here's here's point number three. I believe that that's God's love that's drawing you to himself. You are here because you're responding to God working in your life. Maybe ever so slowly, but you are responding to God working in your life. You might not even want to be here, but that's God's working in your life. Believe me, that's a grace to you. And you're hearing a message that is going to be life-giving for you. The son knew that his father's house was all the provision that he would need. He would not starve there, that he would be provided for there. Even the lowliest servants had what they needed, and he can go back there. John, the apostle, also says that God loves us even when we don't love him. And he is drawing us to himself. And now he might use different means of drawing you. It might be pain. God could use pain to draw you. It might be a broken relationship. It might be a broken career. It might be some kind of addiction or something like that that's drawing you. And he might use that. God can use amazing things in amazing ways to draw you to himself. And it very well might be pain that got you here. It might be family. I have met so many parents who are having children and they desire for their children to be a part of a church. They desire for their children to be around good friends or good, uh, good influences. And so they, they bring their children into church and they're, they're even thinking, I don't even know if I believe these things, but I want my children to be a part of a church with good people. And so I'm drawn to this place because of that. God's drawing you into that. It's very possible that God is using death Maybe you've come recently to the brink of your own mortality. Maybe something, some kind of sickness, something is happening to you, or maybe you're just flat out getting older. And you're thinking to yourself, maybe something's going to happen after I die, and I better start thinking about that. Whatever God is using, he's going to use it to draw you to himself. C.S. Lewis, the famous author, he was an atheist before he became a Christian. He said this, and I quote, he was whispering to me in my pleasures, telling me that there was something more. Or there was a desperate feeling that I had in my pain. Now you might be looking at this and you're thinking to yourself, okay, I get it. There's good news coming, but Charlie, you don't understand. My life is a disaster and there is no way that God's going to redeem me from it. Verse 20, here we go. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now here's the deal. Men don't run unless it's a sport or you've committed a crime, right? Right? Um, like you just don't run. And especially you didn't run in that day. Men didn't run around. Why? Because you had a robe on. That's what people wore back then. In a robe, it covered you from head to toe. And the only way that a man could run is to pick up his robe, exposing his legs. Now that would have been an extremely shameful thing to do in that culture. So they didn't do it. But what you see in Jesus's story about this father is that he pulls up his robe to shamefully and with throwing caution to the wind and saying, my son, my son is home. Here he comes. I'm ready for him. And he embraces him with all of the crap and the dirt and the flesh and the pig stink, all of it. He's embracing him and kissing him. Here's the deal. God's love can redeem you. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. God can redeem you. And you might be looking at that and saying, how? 
how is that even possible? Because I don't think the Father would run after me with everything that I've done. How can the Father forgive so easily? What about all this junk? Doesn't someone have to pay for that? And you might even look at this story and say, wait a minute, the Father gave him half the inheritance, he went and blew it, and now he's coming back and he gets hugged? Shouldn't it be that the father should stand there with crossed arms and look at him judgmentally and say, well, you better come back, son. You better repent. Glad you're here, but you got some work to do. Shouldn't that be the just thing to do? Shouldn't that be what should have happened? Here's the deal. The only way that the, that the father accepts the son is if somebody else pays the debt. The debt has to be paid. Somebody else has to pay it then. And this is exactly what Jesus did on the cross for us. You see, it should have been us. Remember how I said that if, if, if we came to the Father and we said, I want everything that you have, but I don't want you, then we should have been killed. We should have been whipped and stoned and banished from the community. That's what should have happened to us. But God doesn't do that. He allows us to live in his grace for someone else to pay for our sins. And so Jesus dies for us in our place and desires then to have this reconciliation type relationship where the father can run to us. He willingly takes us back and it should have been us. But because Jesus paid for our sins, we can be redeemed. It's entirely possible And Jesus is pointing to that in this story. Let's finish it out. Verse 21 says this. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, kind of cuts him off right there, notice it. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and, it was, and is found and they began to celebrate. Notice here, notice that he does get through the confession and that's important. First John 1 John 1.9 says that we must confess our sins and then we will receive forgiveness. So super important part of the story that he does confess to his father that he is repentant of his sin. Really important. But notice that it cuts off right there. His whole plan in this story was to say, hey, I'm gonna come and I wanna be a servant in your house. But the father cuts him off because often we think in our lives that yes, I wanna get back to God, but I have to work it off. All this bad stuff that I've done, I've got to do enough good stuff so that God will accept me and love me. Until then, he's just looking at me judgmentally. But that's not the story. The story is simple confession and then redemption and back into the Father's arms. That's what happens. We have a false sense that we have to think we have to go through purgatory. We have to do all these actions and graceful things in order to get back into God's acceptance. But that's not the story. He loves you without all that stuff. And so God begins to make all things new. Number five, God's love makes all things new. Notice here that he gives him a robe. And he says to the servants, bring the best robe. Whose robe is the best in the house? The father's robe. So it wasn't, go take a shower, go get bathed, go get clean. 
He doesn't say to us, yeah, go stop doing what you're doing, then come to me. He says, no, 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 I'm going to put you in my clothes right now on this day. So at the end of this, when I ask you to respond, don't think, okay, I got to get my life together a little bit. I got to go say goodbye to some relationships. I got to get some things together before I come to Jesus. No, no, no. You put the robe on now in all of your filth. It covers you up. And then he gives you, a ro- or gives you a ring. What is a ring? It's the authority of the Father. In that culture, it would have been the authority, stamp of approval. I now have the authority of this family. And then lastly, put sandals on his feet. Why? Because only servants don't wear shoes. And so that's what he asked for. He, asked for, he wanted to be in the status of a servant, and he was denied. And he was given the status of a son. So Jesus is telling this story in connection, connecting everything back to God's love for us and his future crucifixion and resurrection. The cross, when you see the cross, he's, when you see Jesus, this picture of Jesus on the cross, we think of him as kind of just a stagnant figure up on a cross nailed up there. But really what's happening there is God is running after us. That's what's happening in the crucifixion. God is running after us, desiring to put his arms around us and kiss us and desiring to keep us in, as a part of his family. That's what he wants. Even though he was the one who was whipped and tortured, we were the one who received the grace. When Jesus should have received the grace and goodness of God, he received the condemnation of us all. And so sometimes we wear these crosses. Some of you this morning have a cross around your neck on a necklace or something like that or on your wrist or some type of jewelry as a decoration. Let me submit to you, the cross is not a decoration. It's a declaration of what God's love has done for you. So let me, let me just, let me, let me tell you what the deal is. If the resurrection isn't true, then none of that stuff about God's love is true either. But if the resurrection is true, and I believe it to be true because it is recorded history of what actually did happen in reality, not in fantasy, it really did happen that, God, that Jesus died and rose again. That actually did happen. And if that happened, then all of that stuff about God's love for you is true. And we can believe it. And if the resurrection is true, then there is no sin that's too wicked. There is no country that's too far. Too, no, there is no shame that's too great, no corruption too big. You, it is possible for you to be redeemed. And you're possibly thinking, you might be in the room today, and you're possibly thinking to yourself, but... You have no idea how far I've gone. I am completely irredeemable. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that God is all-powerful? Do you believe that God is sovereign over all things? If the answer to that question is yes, that he is all-powerful, does that not mean that his grace is also all-powerful? That he gives unconditional, all-powerful grace. And does that mean that if he has all-powerful grace, that that all-powerful grace can cover over and is more powerful than your sin? If that's possible, then there is nothing that you, haven't, that you have done that isn't redeemable, that isn't able to be covered over with God's grace and allow God's arms to wrap around you. Now, there's 
another person in this room that I'm a little scared for, honestly. Because you've walked into this place and maybe you stumbled in here and you're still in that kind of reckless living that the prodigal was in. And you're not in the pigsty. Things are going pretty well for you. Fun is still fun. Sin is still fun. (laughs) And life is good. But let me tell you, there is darkness and there's clouds brewing in the future. Something's going to go wrong, I guarantee it. God loves you in your recklessness, but he also loves you in your darkness. That will eventually happen. The question is, how long are you going to live like that before there's some kind of day of reckoning? You see, if you don't respond to some type of grace from God, your recklessness and your darkness will eventually become eternally permanent. And there won't be a chance for you to respond to this love anymore. So my hope is, is that you, like the prodigal son, would wake up that you'd wake up to this gospel message and maybe even before the dark times, you come to the grace of God and come back to the Father. Now, if you're a believer in this room, I'm glad that you are. Um, and you're just kind of celebrating today what God has done. That's so fantastic. My hope is, is that you would continue to walk forward with this story of redemption uh, in your life. And, um, and maybe uh, we're gonna have a time response here in a minute. Maybe there's somebody next to you who's, you could tell is kind of really working through this whole idea of redemption. And it might be that you need to look right, back, right at him and say, hey, do you, do you wanna respond to this? I'll go with you. I'll stand with you. I'll hold your hand. I'll pray with you. I'll answer your questions. That might be you. Uh, and so my hope is that you'd be a missionary in the next couple of minutes. So the Bible's prescription, if you're really thinking through this and you're like, okay, I need to respond. I, there is a necessary response. God is working inside of my life. I know that that's me. I know that I need to be redeemed and I don't know what to do. Here are the steps. The first step is this. It's just simple belief. It's just simple belief. To believe that it's true. It's a mind change. To believe that Jesus really did die on the cross for your sin to trust it for eternal salvation. We're to go from unbelief, I don't believe this, I don't think it's true, to yes, I do think that it's true, and I believe it. The second thing is receive. So we first believe and then we receive. And what does that mean? It means that we receive the grace of God. And here's the glory of it. It's absolutely free. (coughs) Remember that I told you that you don't have to work it off with God. God accepts you and loves you without any work of your own. It's 100% absolutely free to receive. So we simply receive and we become abundant in those things. 100% of your heart is then covered by the grace of God. It's a fantastic celebration of salvation. Number three, then we repent. So see the order. We believe there's a mind change. We receive there's a life change. There's life change. Grace comes into our life. And then we repent. Why do we repent? Because there is no more room for sin anymore in our lives. Because God's abundant grace and goodness and mercy so fills our life that there's no room for anything else. So we repent, meaning that we're going a certain direction. We're headed towards sins. We're headed towards our selfishness. We're headed towards reckless living. And repentance is walk, turning around and walking towards God. That walk back home, waiting for the Father. So we confess all of these things. We believe, we receive God's grace, and we begin to repent. Now, if you're ready, if you're ready for that, I want you to respond. And how that's going to work is we're going to stand, we're going to sing, we're going to sing an exciting song about the unstoppable nature of God's grace. 
to end the day. It's going to be fantastic. But here's what I want you to do. We're going to stand here in a second. If you want to respond to this message of God's grace, I just want you to get out of your seat and go and hang out in the back. I'm going to be right back there and I want to talk with you. I want to pray with you. I want to walk you through some more steps just to think through uh, the redeeming love of Christ that is for you. And if you've got questions, if you're still kind of, I don't know about all this stuff, I, I want you to I want you to think through it. Just respond. Ask for some boldness from God to step out and respond uh, to his Holy Spirit in your life. Okay? I'm going to pray for you, and we're going to move on. Father, thank you for just a chance to preach and speak about your gospel, that you have given to us this fantastic story of connection with the resurrection and God's love for us. God, I pray that if there is one, two, three, many in this room, God, that, that you are working on right now, that you're working in their heart and they're struggling with unbelief. God, I pray that you'd give them the courage to walk, to move their feet, get, to get their questions answered and to come into a place where they can receive the goodness of salvation, that they walk out of this place with an, like an Easter experience like they've never had before. God, thank you for your graciousness to us. We love you. Amen. All right, do me a favor. Stand up with me. Come and see me in the back. I'd love to see you.